0: Once upon a time, a wealthy king visited one of the vineyards he owned in the hills outside of a small town of his kingdom in the springtime. And while he was visiting his vineyard, he met a farm girl nearby and she was taking care of her family's vineyard. She was working in the family vineyard because her older brothers were making her and the scorching heat of the sun had left its mark on her. The king got to know her a little bit and fell in love with her and began to court her and visit her in her country home. But she was hesitant to marry him even though she loved him as well because she knew it was a big decision and a lifelong serious commitment. But eventually she agreed to marry him. The king sent a royal wedding procession to bring the girl to his palace in the capital city. And when she arrives with a procession, the wedding ceremony takes place followed by a lavish wedding banquet and celebration and their honeymoon as they enjoy their new relationship. Later on in their marriage, some disagreements surface and the king storms off in anger. She regrets her part in that disagreement and confesses and tries to find her lover, the king. She searches and she finds him and they're lovingly reunited and reconcile. Living in the palace is wonderful, but she longs to visit her home that she hasn't seen since she's left for the wedding procession. And so one day she asks her husband, the king, and he agrees, and they both head down to her child home for a visit. And on their way, they visit, on their visit, they strengthen their love and commitment to each other in the small town that she had grown up in where they had first met. And that story happened 3,000 years ago. It's recorded in our Bible of Mr. and Mrs. Solomon here in the Song of Solomon. This is our fifth message in our series on marriage. And you might be wondering, okay, enough already. Why an infusion of marriage teaching from the Bible and our morning Bible study hour and then also our worship service right now. And really the answer to that question is we're doing this because strong marriages are needed for strong homes to thrive. And strong homes, thriving, mean a strong church. Each one of our homes represented here is a block that is part of the building of God's spiritual church. So this this uh, over this series here, beginning in June, we looked at marriage and Eden from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And then marriage and exile from Genesis chapter 3. We looked at marriage and exclusiveness in Proverbs chapter 5, and this is going to be related to that. And then last week, Marriage and Excellence from Proverbs 31. And I trust that uh, last week as we looked at the Proverbs 31 woman, you saw the husband who's behind that. And now this morning, I want to look at Marriage and Engagement from Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Now because this is a theme of marriage, you heard that word engagement and you might have thought of the engagement ring. And asking your person who you want to spend the rest of your life with to marry you, but I don't mean that word in that, in that, with that connotation. What I mean about engagement is engaging, is activity, pursuit here, fueling our tanks, so to speak, and so that's what we want to look at in the book of Song of Solomon. The purpose of the Song of Solomon is that in marriage, men would be men and women would be women as God brings a union of a man with a woman in covenant love. You might be wondering, what's the point of the Song of Solomon? In fact, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on Song of Solomon? Good, a good portion of you, that's good. The, the, the point of the Song of Solomon is that for those who are married or will be married, to rejoice in your spouse, as we looked in Proverbs chapter 5, to be captivated by their love, this is to walk in the path of wisdom that's grounded in the God of heaven. And in the Old Testament, called by His personal name Yahweh. So turn to me to the Song of Solomon, chapter 1 and verse 1. If you find Psalms in the middle of your Bible... Uh, Go to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. If you get to Isaiah, you went a little bit too far. There, Song of Solomon, chapter 1. It's eight chapters in our English Bibles, divided into eight chapters. But verse 1 says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. The title of this book is, at the top of your page, it probably says, The Song of Solomon. That's valid. But in the Hebrew Bible, the title is The Song of Songs. The To say something is the blank of something else, the blank of blank, is a form of expression um, that uh, is is what we say in English, a superlative. And a superlative is simply, um, uh, you have big, bigger, and best, right? Maybe I should have Connie come up here and teach this here. Bigger is comparative, big S is superlative, like there's nothing bigger than that, it's the big S. And so this is a superlative when it says the song of songs. This is the ultimate. Um, this is like, like saying the holy of holies uh, or the king of kings is the highest king. And so the song of songs, it's like Solomon's best song. It's like his number one hit here. In fact, if you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 4, you'll find that Solomon wrote other psalms But the fact that this one is singled out as his best, the Song of Songs, makes it very unique. 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 29. And God gave Solomon. Solomon was was the king of Israel who followed after his uh, who took on next after his father David. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding, exceeding much, and largest of heart, even as a sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the East Country and all the ch- wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite and Emon, and Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Maholiel. And his fame was in all nations round about. Apparently, those are very wise, well known men, sages. And he spake 3,000 proverbs. We know that he also wrote the book of Proverbs, proceeds here, uh, proceeds the Song of Solomon. Uh, to his son. And his songs were a thousand and five. And he spake of trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even of the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spake also of beasts and of fowl and of creeping things and of fishes. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth, which is heard of his wisdom. And so this one song of Solomon's is the best that he has to offer here. And it's inserted in this canon of scripture and is distinguished from all the rest by the name of the song of psalms, which means the most excellent of his songs. In other words, it has a, a, a more excellent nature than all the other psalms that he, songs that he wrote. And this song breaks down into five parts after chapter one, verse one. First of all, it's the song about love. And so it begins with courtship and marriage. It covers the first three parts in chapters 1 through 4. And it's not written chronologically, the song. It's not written chronologically. It skips around a little bit. But that's the theme of of marriage union. And the first part is in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 7. And it's their wedding day reflections. The preparing for the wedding feast in chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. When they're at the wedding feast in verses 9 through 14 and then their honeymoon in chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter 2, verse 7. The second part covers chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 5, and revisits their courtship before the wedding. That springtime visit where they met in chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. And then the wait as they're separated before the wedding day in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The third part is their reflections on their marriage. In chapter 3, verse 6, all the way through really chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1. And they remember their wedding procession in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, and then their wedding night in chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, verse 1. And then the adjustments that need to be made because they're both fallen creatures there are adjustments that need to be made, cover the last two of the five parts of the song in chapters 5 through 8. The problems that came up, you'll find in chapter 5, verse 2, through chapter 6, verse 9. And then their return and their visit back to their childhood home where they first met, her childhood home, in chapter 6, verse 10, through 8, verse 14. And the song now comes to a focal point it comes to the culmination of everything they've been working towards with instruction and even pleading in chapter 8. And the wife pours out her heart to her husband. And this morning's message is going to be from verses 6 and 7 of chapter 8. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave, and co- the coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be condemned. That's on page 599 of your Bible, if you have a Bible this morning here. Verses 6 and 7. So so she pleads, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. I'll explain what a seal is. It's not the little animal there by the breakwater. Uh, And then she says, for love basically is as strong as death. She says, its jealousy is as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. And she says, many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tries to buy love with all of his wealth, all of his house, she says, that would just be an offer that you would just scorn. It's ridiculous. You can't love that. You can't buy that. So really, what point of this passage, these verses, the summary of the Song of Solomon is this. A love that lasts, a love that endures, doesn't happen by default. It doesn't just happen. The carcasses of destroyed marriages that are strewn all over the landscape of our country and even our churches were marriages that stopped engaging. The effort to drive the vehicle after the wedding stopped when the tank ran out. When the tank of attraction and infatuation was empty, that was it. They stopped putting the fuel in the tank of their marriage, and when the fumes whiffed it out, that car slowly coasted to a stop and the ride was over. Now you would think it would be a ridiculous thing to buy a brand new car from the car dealer, to drive it off the lot, to buzz around, and then when it ran ran out of gas to abandon that car and say that car was no good. But sadly, that's what happens with marriages that thought they could run by default. You see, a marriage worth making vows before God and witnesses is a marriage that is worth constantly engaging in, constantly fueling the tank, always checking the gauge because the fuel always needs to be replenished. And in these two verses, we have God's will for our marriages that will keep the fuel tanks filled till death do us part as you vow. And it is this kind of love that God intends and He instructs and He provides for in our homes. So we're going to see five Ps this morning in these couple verses. Five Ps. Uh, A plea, power, protection, product, and price. First of all, I'd like to look at the plea here. In verse 6, she says, Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. A seal in those days was like your driver's license and your credit card and everything that you owned all in one. What it was was a hollow cylinder, and on that cylinder had a certain pattern that you would roll over, uh, uh, over um, uh, soft wax as your signature, your imprint, and everybody had a, had a different one. And you would put a piece of thread through it and you would wear it around your neck. And that would be like, well, nowadays, just your, your, the chip on your card, on your credit card, uh, or your official signature. It was a very special thing. And if someone else got your seal, that would be identity theft 3,000 years ago. And so what she is saying here is see me as your seal. See me as the thing that hangs around your neck as something you protect. As something that is a precious possession. She says, uh, she is pleading for him uh, to, to provide security and closeness and never a separation. Because God had said it all the way back in Genesis, even in Eden, He said, the two shall be one flesh. And she is really saying to the husband here, honor that. Live up to that. And by the way, men, the emphasis here is on men to take the initiative in this. Ray Ortland, Hebrew scholar, says this about this phrase. To paraphrase and expand what she is saying, he's saying, Make me near and dear to you forever. Wear your wedding ring proudly so that everyone can see your loyalty to me. For this love we share is powerful in its finality and permanent in its demand like death itself. In our one flesh relationship, I am giving myself to you in a way that I can never take back. The power of our love burns too intensely to be betrayed without extreme pain. And the Lord Himself is the one who made it so. Our love is sacred. It must not be violated. It is worthy of our all. Our romance comes down from above. And so there's her plea. Set me as a seal. And she also says this about it. She says, set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. His arm was a symbol of strength. And she wanted to be able to rest on His strength. But also, notice here, the power. The power. She says, for love is strong as death. Love is strong as death. That seems like a non-romantic way to describe love. Love is strong as death. But hear what she's saying. Here's what she's saying. And hear this. A love that views the spouse this way is as strong and irreversible as the march of death. When death sets its eyes on an individual, physically in this life, it accomplishes its purpose, doesn't it? Now we know all about the resurrection. When I'm talking about physically, death, death's targets are irreversible. The death rate is 10 out of 10. One out of one, right? It conquers physically. It isn't overcome in this life. It withstands what will attack it. And she's saying, just as death is powerful in this way, and it conquers, so is the true love of cherishing. It is powerful. It conquers everything in its path. When this love, what this love does is it focuses its power on the single object of its love, its spouse, that God has given as a gift to live sacrificially for. And she's saying, when this happens, it cannot be overcome. It does not give up. And death does not give up. Death locks whatever is in its grasp and holds it. And so she says, love needs to do that too. So there's a power here. There's a power here. Thirdly, notice protection. Protection. She says, she compares love to be as strong as death and then she says jealousy "...as cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath the most vehement flame." And what she's saying is this. Jealousy is as enduring as the grave. So she adds another word picture to describe this love in her plea. A burning jealousy. Now, when we hear that word, jealousy, we automatically think negatively. But jealousy is a good thing when it is within its proper boundaries. God Himself is called the jealous God, and it is not because He is insecure. Proper jealousy is simply asserting the rights of proper possession and privilege. Wrong jealousy is when desires are not set on what is not proper within the bounds. But jealousy that is set within the bounds of what has been determined to be proper is right jealousy. Let me give you an illustration of that. Suppose when you go home today, you walk into your house and there's a whole other family living there now. It would not be wrong of you to be jealous of your house. And to exercise what needed to be done to remove those who have not been given that proper right of possession. Let's take it a step further. Suppose you return home from work and you find out that your child is now in the possession of another set of parents. That ratchets us up a little bit tighter, doesn't it? Because you recognize that that child has been given to you for God's glory, for God's purposes here. That child belongs to you. They have no right to just do that. They have no right to just take your child away and claim them as their own. You have a right to be jealous about that. And what about an even higher level here that we're talking about today? Your wife. God is jealous over His people as a pure and righteous husband here. And what she is saying in this passage, in her words to her husband, is this, a marriage is one flesh and no one should ever take the possession or place of that other part. All others are dead to the other who would compete for that kind of love because this is the one who she has set her love on and is now her one flesh. And so there is a proper jealousy here. There is a shelter, in other words. There is a secure place in this jealousy that would guard his most prized possession. And just as the grave never gives up what is in it, so true love is a holy jealousy for the prized possession and would not give them up. In other words, this love is relentless. It is intensely concerned for the one who is loved and their well-being. It is jealous, and that is right. So there's a protection there. Fourthly, there's a product. There's a product. Talks then about coals being coals of fire, a very powerful flame. And then in verse 7, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. And if man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be condemned. There's a product here. And it uses this illustration now of fire. Fire is a very powerful thing. I mean, you're seeing what's happening in California with the wildfires that break out there every year, right? Um, and, And the destruction that it does. But eventually those fires go out, don't they? Eventually they do. Sometimes it might take a year. But eventually those fires go out. Because fire is vulnerable to water. And it is also vulnerable when it does not have fuel. The fuel is taken away. It cannot stand before enough water. But she says here that many waters cannot quench this kind of love. The love that comes from God in a one flesh relationship... Uh, A love that is true and genuine. Even if a river of flooding waters rushed over this love, it would shamefully fail to extinguish it and the flame would still shine. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can the floods drown it. Now notice that she does not say that waters will not try to quench the flame. In fact, she says many waters and even a flood but what she does say is that this kind of love that comes from God is a waterproof torch. Many waters can't quench this love. This love is relentless. This love burns though the rivers may run across it. This love perseveres. His flame doesn't burn out. Again, Ray Ortland says this, Rather than quenched by the dreary waves of monotonous daily life, real love sweeps us away by its overwhelming power. Falling in love is a kind of temporary insanity, hurling us into the reckless abandon that marital commitment truly is. Fortunately, in a healthy marriage, though we recover our right minds to some degree, the sweet craziness never completely leaves us. As the years roll by, a married couple inevitably suffers the buffetings of this life, but biblical marriage is resilient, for many waters cannot quench love. There is a product here that marriage is supposed to produce an enduring quality that doesn't come from our own strength, it comes from God's love implanted in us. But notice fifthly, there's a price. There's a price says in verse eight seven, excuse me, if a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be condemned. The Beatles were right when they said money can't buy me love. You're gonna have that in your head now the rest of the <laughs> To give all of your life savings and your investments and your property to try to buy love, this wife says is worth just scorning at. It's just ridiculous. Because this love isn't bought. This love is given as a gift to be received. Just as God's love is to be received. And it is priceless because the person loved is priceless. So, you have out of her plea all these different things that describe what real lasting love is. And the point of her plea in these verses is this, that a marriage needs constant refueling and renewing, a constant refocusing and going back to the vows that established them as a one-flesh man and woman at the beginning. And you might wonder, how is this love possible? Uh, This just sounds like Disney, happily ever after. This just sounds like the fairy tales and whatever movie tries to portray love as. And what we're saying and what the Bible says is this is a love that is not just simply romance, but this is a love that is born out of the flame of God's love for us. The flame of this enduring love is not kindled by man, but is kindled by God. He is the source of love. And we are only able to love in this way because John tells us, because He first loved us in Christ. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, which we will get to, this kind of nourishing and cherishing and honoring love is only possible because of Ephesians 5.18 that precedes it, which says, Be continually filled with the spirit if our life of obedience to God in our marriage depends on whether or not we are letting the word of Christ dwell and umpire our lives richly as we are dependent on the holy spirit's will of God for our lives as revealed in the word of God the bible and that means that that doesn't happen by default either A good marriage doesn't happen by default because a good marriage is based on spiritual truth that doesn't happen by default. It is based on the intake and the constant refreshing and the constant renewing of our minds in God's Word. And the reasons that a marriage will face wavering is because one or both parties are not filled with the Spirit of God. That sounds too reductionistic and simplistic, I know, but it's true. It's true. And so a marriage that is to have a power that uh, is compared to the finality and success of even death, a marriage that has the protection of jealousy, that that is a fire like the eternal flame, that uh, that 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 shines there in Washington D.C. as a tribute to the to the unknown soldier and and uh, and, and John F. Kennedy and they're, they're in the Washington D.C. Uh, plaza there. The reason it keeps burning is because there is a fuel source. But if somebody forgot to fill that fuel source, it wouldn't burn out. It would burn out. And so it is in our marriages. You see. Your horizontal relationship and your vows before the Lord are only as strong as your vertical relationship with the Lord. How is this love possible? Because God kindles this. This nourishing, this cherishing that Ephesians 5 tells us is based on being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, obeying the Lord and being in right relationship with Him. So the question to each of the marriages that are represented here or those that are single but will be married later is to step back and ask yourself, how is my relationship with the Lord? Are there things that I am not trusting Him for that are trickling down into my marriage relationship? Are there things that I have not surrendered to him that when those things are, poked, are are poked and prodded and squeezed, that what comes out in our marriage relationship is poison because I have not handed that over to the Lord. Think back to your last disagreements that turned into more than a disagreement over things? What was really going on in your heart? What were you really living for? Because we looked in our Sunday school uh, last week and we saw from James 4 that conflicts and strivings come from within us because we do what we do because we want what we want. There's a wrong desire there. You see, if love is surrendering myself for the good of the other person, then that means that when love is not there, I am not surrendering myself. And so married love is nothing less, the kind of love that she is describing in Song of Solomon chapter 8 saying, we need this in our marriage. And husbands, you take the initiative in this in your marriage. The kind of love she is describing is nothing less than the very flame of the Lord. We sing a song once in a while called, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. And the words of that old hymn, the point of that is this, that God's love is a love that is higher than any other kind of love. And the Bible calls this an agape type of love, is the Greek word, and it means a selfless love. A love that looks for the best interests of others. A love that in Philippians 2, Paul can say, Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Because of Jesus, who stepped down from heaven, who died in our place, and is exalted. The love in the Song of Solomon that has echoes here of Eden, you look at what she says, has echoes of Eden all throughout the song here, is only displayed. In image-bearers of God who reflect the ongoing love of their Creator. And so perhaps if that love is not being displayed to the one that God has brought you together to be with one flesh, or will eventually one day, maybe you'll remember this one day, but if that love is not displayed, then you need to go back to the love that God has showed you, that Romans 8 says, Nothing that is created can separate you from this love. This woman, she's called the Shulamite in Song of Solomon, recognizes that she doesn't live in Eden. She lives in a world of exile, a world of brokenness. And that world of brokenness means that there is, as we heard this morning, a war that goes on between God's kingdom and our kingdoms. And she understands that if she is going to have sustaining love, her marriage must be a marriage that is engaging continually. A marriage that is not harboring bitterness. A marriage that is not trying to control the other person. A marriage that uh, 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 does not walk around always suspicious of the other person but a marriage that serves the other person selflessly. And if so, then that is a strong marriage. Not immune from the waters that will come, but able to withstand the storms that blow against it because that is not kindled in man's heart. That's kindled by the love of God.